Have you checked out our YouTube channel yet? That's where we upload video reviews of the latest TV shows and movies, stream gaming content on occasion, and recently, we've started doing in-depth video essay analysis. We have a goal to reach 1,000 subscribers by the end of the year, and we need your help to get there. We'd like to celebrate by doing something special for all of our subscribers if we hit this goal. And we'll rely on you to help decide what we end up doing. To find us, simply search at the Borough Media on YouTube. Make sure to not only subscribe if you like the content, but to give the video a like and ring the bell to make sure you receive notifications when we upload or go live. TBR Media is your movie refuge. And welcome to another edition of the Into the Borough podcast here on TBR Media's network. My name is Jared, your host for the day, and we have got an amazing episode for you. A ton of news to discuss, some of it quite frightening, including the SAG uh, strike now on its uh, third day here as they join the picket line with the WGA and the writers Uh, Also in the news, we have some box office numbers from Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. We have a story about why Mike Flanagan is championing piracy. We'll get into that a little bit later. We also have news on why Robert Pattinson isn't in Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, despite uh, basically giving uh, Christopher Nolan the idea for Oppenheimer. And then we also have uh, tone-deaf statements from CEO of Disney, Bob Iger, on the state of the MCU and also on the SAG strike. A little bit later in the episode, we are going to be giving our quick review of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. We only did a rapid review uh, out of the theater reaction over on our uh, TikTok on Monday, Uh, So now is the time that we're going to get into the full review and see what we truly think of the film. So if all that sounds good to you, stay tuned for later in the episode. And uh, without further ado, let's get into the box office. Facts are facts, and Paramount and Skydance's Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 set a five-day domestic opening record for the franchise with $80 million. Paramount is calling the global opening here at $235 million. Asserted Paramount domestic distribution president Chris Aronson this morning said, quote, Mission is a global story, has always been a global story, and will continue to be a global story. Previous best five-day opening record belonged to 2000's Mission Impossible 2, which cleared a Wednesday through Sunday takeover Memorial Day weekend of $78.8 million. The three-day record still belongs to 2018's Mission Impossible 4. Fallout, which posted $61 million. Dead Reckoning is seeing a three-day opening of $56.2 million at just over 4,000 theaters, including IMAX and PLF auditoriums. Dead Reckoning reps Oscar-winning filmmaker Christopher McQuarrie's third time directing a mission movie after 2015's Rogue Nation and Fallout. Technically, he has four Mission Impossible movies under his belt, as he's also directing Dead Reckoning Part 2. 
Elsewhere, Angel Studios' faith-based political thriller Sound of Freedom remains a force to reckon with. The movie pays number two for the weekend, and $25 million gained from an early domestic total of $83 million plus. Insidious The Red Door fell to number three in its sophomore outing, with an estimated $13 million for a 10-day domestic tally of $58 million. The pick earned another $21.5 million overseas for a global haul of $122.6 million. Disney and Lucasfilm's Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny placed number four domestically with $12 million gained. The fifth and final installment has grossed $125 million domestically and $302 million worldwide. Pixar and Disney's Elemental continued to hold on as well. The animated pick earned $8.7 million in North America and $28.2 million overseas for a global total of $311.7 million. At the specialty box office, Sundance Entry Theater Camp opened to a promising location average of $45,000 from six theaters. And that concludes your box office update. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is the seventh Mission Impossible film in the franchise, the third directed by Christopher McQuarrie, with another one on the way with Dead Reckoning Part 2. It stars Tom Cruise, Haley Atwell, Vang Rhimes, Simon Pegg, Henry Cerny, and Rebecca Ferguson in a chaotic blend of action and comedy. Ethan Hunt and his impossible mission force team must track down a dangerous weapon before it falls into the wrong hands. And this time around, the MacGuffin is a key, or rather, two parts to a key, that you need in order to basically shut down an existential threat to humanity. It's a very timely MacGuffin. The villain this time around isn't any one person, but instead like an existential threat of sorts, although you do have your main villain in the form of Asai Morales, who does a incredible job here at being cold, calm, and calculated, but also um, letting the audience understand that he is just a vessel for the true villain. And I think that that was one of the more interesting takes. A lot of people have said that it didn't work quite as well as we've gotten in the past Mission Impossible movies. However, I feel like Depending on what we get from Dead Reckoning Part 2, it was justified and it was perfect for this film. Now let's talk a little bit about the action because the action is the focal point of any Tom Cruise-led project, it seems. Uh, There were a ton of sequences. The car chases in the streets, the cobblestone streets of Rome, worked really, really well. The whole gag of, of Ethan Hunt and also of Haley Atwell's character being handcuffed together during that chase um, made it all the more fun. People were doing their own stunts, both Tom Cruise and Haley Atwell. Of course, they probably weren't doing them the whole time, but seeing them, you know, with a camera mounted on the hood of the car uh, actually drift through the streets of Rome is exhilarating. And I love the fact that these movies uh, take such an initiative to show the audience that what they are doing is real. 
not only does it add stakes to the actual plot of the film, but it also keys the audience and the viewer into realizing and recognizing just how detrimental uh, if something were to go wrong, an accident would be. You had a bunch of uh, fist fights and hand-to-hand combat throughout the movie as well, and I think a lot of that worked really well. There's a particular sequence with Ethan Hunt in this tight alleyway, and the Dutch angles and the way that they were able to capture that action on screen, those sequences had a huge nail-biting effect for the viewer, uh, even for me, and I think a lot of it comes down to the placement of the action sequence within the uh, constricted alleyway, but also the angles that they were choosing to capture things on. And then, of course, you have the pinnacle dirt bike base jump that Tom Cruise has been featured doing for the better part of six months. Um, So, it you know, we've seen a lot from this, but even then... There was a moment in the theater where the whole audience, you could feel, you could feel the air being sucked out of the room when he makes that base jump off that cliff. And that's after we've seen so many featurettes and so many insights into how they made that stunt practical. I think in terms of performances here, Haley Atwell steals the entire show she is able to emote in a way where her eyes are doing a lot of the acting for her. And her character, Grace, is a welcome addition to the Mission Impossible Task Force. When they announced that this movie was part one of two, one of the things that went through my mind were stakes. You know, there have been a lot of characters in the Mission Impossible franchise that have been killed off on screen. Uh, you know, namely the villains, but also um, some of Ethan Hunt's own team members. And I sat there and was conceptualizing ways in which to bring the stakes forward in this film and to really give the audience a sense of dread for the characters. And they successfully were able to do that in this movie. I'm not going to spoil anything for you, but it does have stakes. And That's something I did appreciate about this particular Mission Impossible movie. And I'm also excited to see how it all rounds out the next go-around. If there is one department in particular where I felt the movie to be a little bit lackluster, it was the editing. The intercuts, specifically, between the gargantuan action sequences and some of the other plot points that are going on simultaneously. And I can think of two instances where the intercutting between two different scenes didn't work as well as it probably should have or could have had they just like done it a little bit more effectively maybe even to the point where we are not intercutting in those sequences and i think one of them is involving ilsa faust and the other is that dirt bike base jump that we get later on in the movie those sequences are wholly effective on their own. And so when you make the choice in the editing room to intercut between two different scenes, it removes the fear for the characters out of the equation. And that was the complaint that I kept coming back to about this movie. And again, it just left it kind of feeling a little bit lackluster in the end. The stunts are incredible. The action is incredible. And really, this was my only gripe that I had with this film. I still prefer Mission Impossible Fallout and Ghost Protocol um, to Dead Reckoning Part 1. But again, it's not a completed story. There's a lot left hanging at the end of this movie 
to set up part two. And they were currently in production on Dead Reckoning part two, but the SAG strike has now put that on pause. But let me know what you all think of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 down in the comments below. We would love to hear your thoughts on it and whether or not you had a good time at the theaters because we certainly did. I know at this point you've heard a lot about our website, theboroughmedia.com, but I wanted to share some of the content you can expect from us in case you missed it. On our site, you'll find podcasts, movie reviews, opinion articles, and more content covering all types of cinema. If you're looking for a review on your latest project, we've got you covered. Simply search theboroughmedia.com in your website browser, and you'll find us. As a company residing in Nebraska, we know how hard it can be to get your message out to the world, and we want to help. Find our contact page on our website and fill out the form. You'll also find a list of submission guidelines on the page. Not every submission will be accepted, mainly due to time restrictions, but we welcome all types of motion pictures. So what are you waiting for? Head over to the site now and check it out. TVR Media is your movie refuge. So this comes to us via The Hollywood Reporter. Succession, The Last of Us, The White Lotus, and Ted Lasso were among the shows whose names were heard the most often when the Emmy nominations were revealed during a virtual ceremony on Wednesday. Actors earning nominations including Pedro Pascal for The Last of Us, Jeremy Strong for Succession, Quinta Brunson for Abbott Elementary, and Jenna Ortega for Wednesday. Notable snubs included Harrison Ford missing out on nominations for Shrinking and 1923, the Yellowstone spinoff, Elizabeth Olsen not being nominated for Love and Death, Selena Gomez and Steve Martin not making the cut as acting nominees for their roles in Only Murders in the Building, Sarah Goldberg missing out on a Barry Nod, no acting nominations for the Saturday Night Live cast, and the shutouts of Yellowstone and Snowfall. And Yellowstone historically has not done well with this voting body. Meanwhile, Welcome to Chippendales and Jury Duty earned a surprise five and four nominations each, respectively. In order to be eligible for this year's awards, TV shows had to have aired between June 1st of 2022 and May 31st of 2023. The 75th Annual Primetime Emmys are currently set to air live from the Peacock Theater, formerly the Microsoft Theater, on Monday, September 18th from 5 to 8 p.m. However, to note, it's possible that the awards presentations could get delayed if there isn't a resolution to the ongoing writer's strike later this summer, while the possibility of an actor's strike also looms. So, here is the partial list, and uh, if you want to go read this list, it'll be uh, in the show notes. I'll make sure to put it down there in the YouTube description or in the podcast show notes for you. Best drama series, we have Andor, Better Call Saul, The Crown, House of the Dragon, The Last of Us, Succession, The White Lotus, and Yellow Jackets. For best actor in a drama series, you have Jeff Bridges for The Old Man, Brian Cox, Succession, Kieran Culkin, Succession, Bob Odenkirk... Yeah, Better Call Saul. Pedro Pascal, The Last of Us, and Jeremy Strong in Succession. Best Actress, you have Sharon Horgan, Melanie Linsky, Elizabeth Moss, Bella Ramsey, Carrie Russell, and Sarah Snook. For Bad Sisters, Yellow Jackets, The Handmaid's Tale, The Last of Us, The Diplomat, and Succession. For Best Comedy Series, we have Abbott Elementary, Barry, The Bear, Jury Duty, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Only Murders in the Building, Ted Lasso, and Wednesday. Best Actress in a Comedy Series, we have Christina Applegate, Dead to Me, Rachel Brosnahan for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, 
Quinta Brunson for Abbott Elementary, Natasha Leone for Poker Face, and Jenna Ortega for Wednesday. Meanwhile, in the actor category in a comedy series, you have Bill Hatter on Barry, Martin Short for Only Murders in the Building, Jason Siegel for Shrinking, Jason Sudeikis for Ted Lasso, and Jeremy Allen White for The Bear. And then in the supporting categories uh, for the drama series, you had standouts like Theo James for The White Lotus, Alan Ruck for Succession, Alexander Skarsgård for Succession. A lot of love to The White Lotus and Succession here. And then in the actress category for a drama series for Best Supporting, Jennifer Coolidge for The White Lotus. Uh, you also had Aubrey Plaza for The White Lotus. Rhea Seahorn did get a nomination for Better Call Saul, which I love to see. And then J. Smith Cameron for Succession as well. For supporting actor and actresses in a comedy series, you had Anthony Kerrigan for Barry. You had James Marsden for Jury Duty. Brett Goldstein for Ted Lasso. Tyler James Williams for Abbott Elementary. And Henry Winkler for Barry. So you had two Barry supporting actor nominations there. For supporting actress in a comedy series, you had Janelle James for Abbott Elementary, Cheryl Lee Ralph for Abbott Elementary, Juno Temple for Ted Lasso, Hannah Waddingham for Ted Lasso, Jessica Williams for Shrinking, and Alex Bornstein for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Best Limited or Anthology Series Beef on Netflix got a nod, as well as Dahmer, Monster, The Jeffrey Dahmer Story, I hate that title. Daisy Jones and the Six for Prime Video. And then, shockingly, you had a nomination here for Obi-Wan Kenobi. What? So those were the main standouts there. And like I said, you can go read the full list down in the description below or in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for checking out this video. I know it was fast. It was brief. But I wanted to kind of give you an oversight as to the Emmys, just because not a whole lot of people are talking about it with the SAG strike uh, being imminent at the time of recording. And then also, um, you know, everything else that's occurring in the DC and Marvel world. There's a report out today about Bob Iger and and his thoughts on how Disney Plus has diluted the MCU. So it's been a whole slew of, of entertainment news. And unfortunately, the Emmys just kind of got swept under the rug. But when you're not nominating Harrison Ford for shrinking in a supporting role for a comedy series, it's a little bit weird to me especially given Harrison Ford's resurgence this year, um, you know, with Indiana Jones and Shrinking and and uh, Yellowstone 1923, all of those projects that he has um, come back in full force almost, you know. There was a short period of time there, right around 2015, when A Force Awakens released, where it felt like he wasn't even acting anymore. So it's been nice to get the Harrison Ford resurgence um, I think that the Barry snubs are kind of weird to me, like Sarah Goldstein for not getting a supporting actress nom in a comedy. I get that the final season of Barry was not at all a comedy, like truthfully. There were comedic moments, there were satirical themes and overtones, right? But it was never that comedy that it was back in the first uh, two seasons, honestly. So the Federal Trade Commission versus Microsoft is now over. And the judge has decided to deny the FTC's preliminary injunction request. This is a huge win. Uh, this is from Tom Warren in The Verge. Warren writes, A California judge is allowing Microsoft to close its acquisition of Activision Blizzard after five days of grueling testimony. Five days isn't that long, but I get for them... A it's probably an eternity. Uh, Microsoft still faces an ongoing antitrust case by the Federal Trade Commission, but Judge Jacqueline Scott Corley has listened to arguments from both the FTC and Microsoft and decided to deny the regulator's request for a preliminary injunction. In a ruling submitted today, Judge Corley said the following, 
Microsoft's acquisition of Activision has been described as the largest in tech history. It deserves scrutiny. That scrutiny has paid off. Microsoft has committed in writing, in public, and in court to keep Call of Duty on PlayStation for 10 years on parity with Xbox. Xbox also made an agreement with Nintendo to bring Call of Duty to the Switch, and it entered several agreements for the first time to bring Activision's content to several cloud gaming services. This court's responsibility in this case is narrow. It is to decide if, notwithstanding these current circumstances, the merger should be halted, perhaps even terminated, pending resolution of the FTC administrative action. For the reasons explained, the court finds the FTC has not shown a likelihood it will prevail on its claim this particular vertical merger in this specific industry may substantially lessen competition. To the contrary, the record evidence points to more consumer access to Call of Duty and other Activision content. The motion for a preliminary injunction is therefore denied. Judge Corley has clearly sided with Microsoft on its commitments to keep Call of Duty on PlayStation and even extend the game to the Nintendo Switch. Despite the FTC challenging Microsoft's cloud agreements, Judge Corley took them into consideration in her decision. The court ruling even agrees with Microsoft in theory about Nintendo Switch being part of the console market, but also accepts the FTC can reasonably claim it's not. In a statement following Judge Corley's decision, Microsoft President Brad Smith said the company was grateful to the court in San Francisco for this quick and thorough decision and hope other jurisdictions will continue working towards a timely resolution, a sentiment echoed by Xbox head Phil Spencer. The judge's ruling now allows Microsoft to close its Activision Blizzard deal ahead of the July 18th deadline, but only if the company is willing to close around the UK or if the Competition and Markets Authority, the CMA, is willing to negotiate some form of remedy. The UK regulator moved to block Microsoft's proposed acquisition in April, if you'll remember, and Microsoft is currently appealing that decision with the hearing set to start on July 28th. So it's very possible that we get a decision here um, smack dab in the middle of August, you know, foreseeing that, that that hearing actually goes well in Microsoft's favor. Something to note here, this was a judge from San Francisco in the tech hub of the world. And so it's no surprise that, you know, oh, we don't see any issues with this merger. Um, that's huge. Now, I will say that I don't know where I stand on this particular issue. On one hand, Game Pass and Microsoft's plan to kind of bring games to a broader audience via Game Pass is really consumer friendly. And PlayStation's been battling with them because they say it's devaluing games, but in the same hand, they're spending $200 million on a game per PlayStation leaks that recently happened, showing that a vast majority of PlayStation uh, players that, you know, play Call of Duty regularly only play that game on PlayStation. So they have a vested interest in saying that this deal will ultimately hurt games. Although, like I mentioned, you know, $200 million a game, driving up the cost of games, uh, in a way that could also be detrimental to the gaming community. So it's it's kind of this tit-for-tat situation where someone's going to have to give something in order to gain another. And We'll just have to wait and see what that ultimately looks like. But this is a huge win for Microsoft. So don't be surprised in August if we hear that this thing just goes through full steam ahead. I had mentioned it, you know, the last time we talked about this, that it was very likely that this deal would happen and that Microsoft would, in fact, acquire Activision Blizzard.
Moving on to a really interesting Slash Film article over uh, Midnight Mass creator Mike Flanagan and piracy. It's no secret that Netflix and most streaming services, for that matter, have little interest in releasing shows or movies on physical media. Occasionally, a title might make its way to Blu-ray, but it's genuinely surprising when it does happen. This has become a real sticking point for many viewers as stuff keeps disappearing from streaming services as companies look to cut costs by saving on royalties. Heck, Disney Plus removed the movie Crater from its service mere weeks after it debuted, and now it's nowhere to be found. And that's why Mike Flanagan has changed his tune when it comes to piracy. Flanagan was a mainstay at Netflix for years, making shows like The Haunting of Hill House and Midnight Club, as well as movies such as Gerald's Game. Recently, a fan reached out to him on Tumblr inquiring about a DVD release of Midnight Mass. Such a thing doesn't exist, but Flanagan revealed that he actually owned several pirated copies of the show. In Flanagan's eyes, the people making these unsanctioned Blu-rays are archivists of sorts. Flanagan said, quote, Yesterday's pirates are in some cases the only hope for archival preservation of a growing amount of shows and movies. I have purchased several pirated Blu-ray copies of Midnight Mass and am impressed with the quality and presentation, and I am profoundly grateful they exist. Godspeed, noble archivist. The majority of Flanagan's work for Netflix is not available on DVD or Blu-ray. The exceptions are The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor, which, as the filmmaker explained, were co-produced by Paramount, who retained the home video rights. Hence the exception. Flanagan's hope for a better uh, physical media future isn't too far off, as a Netflix executive actually told him that they were planning to package everything into a Flaniverse box set. And this could be potentially why Mike Flanagan and Trevor Macy are leaving Netflix for Prime Video. In any event, he is a true believer in the importance of physical media and has been trying to fight the good fight behind the scenes. And next, let's read a report from Deadline that suggests that Robert Pattinson influenced the Oppenheimer film without actually being a part of it. Christopher Nolan has opened up about how Oppenheimer came to be, and Robert Pattinson has a lot to do with it. The Dark Knight trilogy director had worked with Pattinson before in Tenet, where they got to talking about Oppenheimer. Nolan said, quote, Yeah, Rob, off the back of Tenet, where we refer to Oppenheimer, and I had wrote a thing about this incredible moment that Oppenheimer and the scientists of the Manhattan Project had, where they could not completely eliminate the possibility that when they triggered the first gadget, that first atomic device, they might start a chain reaction that would destroy the world. Nolan continued, We use that as a metaphor for Tenet, which Rob was in, as a rap gift, he gave me a book of Oppenheimer's speeches from the 1950s, where you're reading these great intellects trying to deal with the massive consequences of the way in which they've changed life forever for all of us. But as to why Pattinson is not part of the Oppenheimer film, it's pretty simple. Nolan says that he was very busy and very much in demand these days. So it was a little fun nugget in the news this week. I think it's, um, I, I like reading and hearing about how directors came to be influenced on any particular project. And this is a great example of, oh, hey, here's a, a rap gift of all these speeches that uh, Oppenheimer made back in the 1950s. I think you'll like it. And we have an Oppenheimer movie. Look at that. So Bob Iger has been in the news uh, a lot these days, uh, specifically this week, re-upping his contract with Disney. Um, he was only supposed to be there through 2024 as kind of a transitional CEO, but instead has decided to stick it out for two more years and extend a contract into 2026. 
Um, so that was the first thing this week. And then he had a lot to say about the SAG strike and everything going on behind the scenes in the industry, uh, making some pretty tone-deaf comments. He said, quote, there's a level of expectation that they have, meaning the uh, guild members, both of the WGA and the SAG union, that is just not realistic. And they are adding to the set of challenges that this business is already facing that is, quite frankly, very disruptive. Now, it's important to keep in mind that uh, Bob Iger calling these uh, sort you know, strikes not being realistic and uh, also saying that it's very disturbing to me that this is even happening. Note that Bob Iger is paid uh, a little under $75,000 a day, um, and the average writer in Hollywood makes an average annual salary of $69,000 a year. So huge discrepancy there. Um, but he also made some comments about the quality of MCU films that we've been talking about here on this show and on our YouTube channel for a very long time at this point. Uh, this is an article from Collider. Bob Iger signed a contract extension this week, which will see him lead the Walt Disney Company for a further two years through 2026. Part of Iger's remit is going to involve turning around what is rapidly coming a sinking creative ship when it comes to the issue of Disney+, and the negative effects felt due to the company overstretching itself while trying to generate content for the streaming service. Speaking to CNBC on Thursday, Iger admitted that the company would be slowing down when it comes to making movies and TV series for its Marvel Studios and Lucasfilm franchises, coming at a time when the company seeks to cut costs when a wide slate of releases have massively underperformed at the worldwide box office. Another reason for these diminishing box office returns came down to the training the audience to stay at home and watch films. Pixar, which was once the pinnacle and gold standard of animation, has suffered a string of financial and some critical failures since 2020. Films like Luca, Turning Red, and Soul were all launched directly onto Disney+, Plus, which created the expectation that Pixar films were no longer appointment viewing. That, combined with a shortened theatrical release window, removed any immediate need for families to go to the multiplexes. While Iger has ultimately mishandled other problems at Disney, notably the WGA strike and the SAG strike, he has shown at least some awareness of where the creative issues for the company's big fish lie. Now, he needs to fix them. And preferably, before 2026. The WGA strike, which started early in May, so a little over two months ago, kicked off the whole entire industry on a conversation of residuals of AI and several other issues that were stemming from writers' rooms and behind the scenes on sets. And so when it came time for the DGA or the Directors Guild to re-up their contract and their negotiations with the Producers Guild, there were a lot of questions on whether the directors would stand in support and in solidarity with the writers, and that wasn't the case. So obviously, the deal that the AMPTP brought to the table with the directors was sufficient enough for their leadership. However, not the same thing happened with SAG-AFTRA and the Screen Actors Guild, because there has been a growing kind of resentment between the members of the SAG union and the studios. And so it was less likely for SAG to even reach a deal. However, with the extension of the contract 
talks and the deadline that was originally set for the beginning of the month was pushed up to this date here and it has fallen through and i think there was a lot of healthy skepticism surrounding whether or not sag would stand in solidarity with the writers when the directors did not it was something like an overwhelming majority some 98 percent of sag members that voted to authorize a strike should no deal be made between the AMPTP and the SAG leaders. But now it's official. A SAG strike is imminent. So I want to bring you a lot of the news that came out today because there has been several carefully positioned stunts that have occurred that all feel a little choreographed to one another, and I want to talk about them all. We're going to start with just the bare bones news about SAG's strike here. So let's get it started. This comes to us via The Hollywood Reporter. SAG-AFTRA's negotiating committee unanimously recommends strike as contract deadline passes without a deal. The union's national board will vote on whether to officially call a work stoppage on Thursday. So we're here. It's Thursday. Though officially the nail-biter continues, a SAG-AFTRA strike appears almost certain at this point. After SAG-AFTRA's deadline for the expiration of its film and television contracts package passed Wednesday at midnight with no deal reached, with studios and streamers, its negotiating committee unanimously voted to recommend that its national board call a strike. Though that decision clearly suggests a strike is imminent, the national board planned to meet Thursday at 9 a.m. to officially decide whether to call a work stoppage. Quote, After more than four weeks of bargaining, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the AMPTP, the entity that represents major studios and streamers, including Amazon, Apple, Disney, NBC, Netflix, Paramount, Sony, and so forth, remains unwilling to offer a fair deal on the key issues that are essential to SAG-AFTRA members, SAG-AFTRA said in a statement early Thursday around 1 a.m. In its own statement, the AMPTP said that it was, quote, deeply disappointed that SAG-AFTRA wasn't extending negotiations. Quote, this is the union's choice, not ours. In doing so, it has dismissed our offer of historic pay and residual increases, substantially higher caps on pension and health contributions, audition protections, shortened series option periods, a groundbreaking AI proposal that protects actors, quote, digital likeness, and more, the statement continued. It added that SAG-AFTRA has put on a course that will deepen the financial hardship for thousands who depend on the industry for their livelihoods. In a statement Thursday morning, union president of SAG, that is, Fran Drescher, said that the AMPTP's responses to the union's proposals have been insulting and disrespectful to our massive contributions to this industry. A double strike featuring a writer's and actor's work stoppage would be the first to occur since 1960 when Ronald Reagan helmed SAG-AFTRA as president. Hollywood Studios' WGA strike endgame is to let writers go broke before resuming talks in the fall. This was exclusive to Deadline and updated with AMPTP statement. Regardless of whether SAG-AFTRA goes on strike this week, and they most certainly are, the studios have no intention of sitting down with the Writers Guild for several more months. This studio exec, who wasn't named and is anonymous, says, quote, I think we're in for a long strike. They're going to let it bleed out. Let it bleed out. Let people lose potentially their homes, their livelihoods, their apartments, their whole entire financial foundation. 
And would I bring up the fact that this all seems choreographed? They had a bunch of junkets and a bunch of premieres that they literally moved up because of the potential SAG strike. I don't think that that's hyperbolic at all, because it was very clear to me, at least from this story that we're about to dive into from Variety, where the Oppenheimer cast leaves the UK premiere as SAG-AFTRA strike is imminent. I think this clearly highlights the fact that they had known that this was probably and likely going to be happening. And so uh, let's break this story down because it's interesting to note in terms of the timing of everything. Christopher Nolan confirmed before the beginning of the Oppenheimer screening that the cast left in solidarity with the SAG strike. Previously, Matt Damon has revealed that the Oppenheimer cast has discussed their strike strategy before hitting the movie's red carpet premiere in London on Thursday. Damon said, quote, we talked about it. Look, if it's called now, everyone's going to walk, obviously, in solidarity. Once the strike is officially called, we're walking. We voted 98 to 2% to do that because we know our leadership has our best interest at heart. It's really about working actors. It's 26000 to qualify for health coverage, and a lot of people are on the margins and residual payments are getting them across that threshold. This isn't an academic exercise. This is real life and death stuff. The London carpet for Christopher Nolan's atomic bomb thriller kicked off just before 5 p.m. local time. In the event of an early strike, sources told Variety that the entire cast planned to discreetly exit the carpet. Now, if you were curious as to what Fran Drescher had to say about this very matter earlier on today, around uh, 12 p.m. Los Angeles time, let's take a listen to a snippet of her speech, because I think it's super important that you know where they're coming from. And after all of the issues with Fran Drescher of late uh, that have been in the news cycles, you know, her photo with Kim Kardashian... Uh, so on and so forth, and also for that response that she gave about the SAG negotiations about a month ago that caused some concern, here is a very strong response from the SAG president. The eyes of the world, and particularly the eyes of labor, are upon us. What happens here is important because what's happening to us is happening across all fields of labor. The gravity of this move is not lost on me or our negotiating committee or our board members who have voted unanimously to proceed with a strike. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. I cannot believe it, quite frankly, how far apart we are on so many things, how they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines. And big business, who cares more about Wall Street than you and your family? Most of Americans don't have more than $500 in, a, in an emergency. This is a very big deal, and it weighed heavy on us. So the jig is up, AMPTP. We stand tall. You have to wake up and smell the coffee. From the AMPTP's perspective, you don't have to come to the table for the writers because you can kind of patch things. Um, it may not be the prettiest. It may not ultimately lead to a better movie product. 
But at the end of the day, you can kind of skirt around that for a few months and get away with it. But with the actors, it is entirely different, and it will bring everything to a grinding halt. So that is the biggest breaking news story by far of the week. We're going to have to see how long this thing lasts. I could imagine a situation where they come to the deal for the SAG negotiations with a contract that may not give them everything that they want, but is pretty adequate as early as a month or two. Uh, preferably within a month, if there's a complete stoppage on every single production in Hollywood. Um, It's a huge deal. I don't know how this is all going to end, but again, I think if the WGA and the SAG members stand together in solidarity, and they don't get one without the other, and they have that mentality, which it seems like they already do, for the reporting that we've done over the last week with the, you know, different members of SAG showing up in support of the writer's strikes, Um, and kind of positioning themselves as allies early on, before the deal even expired. It's, It's about to get real. It's about to get real rough. If you're wondering what should be on your radar over the week, we have a few things for you to watch. After a couple of years of the COVID pandemic partially putting the film biz on thin ice, we've had a super stacked summer back at the movies. Not only that, the talent we've had on display has been great as well. So this week we had Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which was absolutely stunning. We're going to talk about it a little bit more um, in the coming days. At the specialty box office, you have Theater Camp as well, which was only released in limited, but it should be coming out here in the near future. And it's garnered some pretty positive reviews despite not really being a movie that is on everyone's radar, so it should be on yours. So watch out for when Theater Camp comes out. You had Foundation Season 2 on Apple TV Plus that premiered on Friday. Sci-fi movies and TV shows have been riding a major high in recent years with releases like Dune continuing up the ante for these kinds of stories that we can tell. Similarly, Apple TV's series adaptation of Foundation is pushing the boundaries for what can be achieved on the small screen. With the second season premiering, viewers can expect the series to be set an entire century after the first. Plots to crumble the empire, spreading intergalactic religions, and relationships that will determine the fate of humanity will continue to plague the sprawling cast of Foundation. The After Party also released on Apple TV. This is season two, and the first two episodes are now streaming. What we do in the shadows, new episodes from season five are airing weekly on FX and streaming the next day on Hulu. We have yet to finish What We Do in the Shadows season one, but it's a show that we put on when we want to have a good time and we're in a really good mood. And so I do recommend that you at least give What We Do in the Shadows a try. Uh, Like the article mentions here, it airs on FX weekly, but you can stream it on Hulu. For video games, the big release on July 14th, just over the last few days here, was Exoprimal on PlayStation 5, Windows PC, and Xbox Series X. Though Exoprimal definitely channels Dino Crisis, a Capcom series not seen in 20 years, this game is an all-new approach. Its main mode of play is Dino Survival, which is a PvEVP slugfest where two teams of five players try to complete objectives or stop the other team while both battle dinos like the Neo Tyrannosaur. Over on Metacritic, the user scores haven't been the best, but other outlets are calling it silly, unique, and a ton of fun. 
So what will you be playing over the week and into the next weekend as we anticipate the release of Barbie and Oppenheimer? And that is going to conclude today's episode of the Into the Borough podcast. Thank you again so much for listening to this episode. We had a whole lot of big major news. We also had a review of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, and we had a lot to talk about when it came to the new releases this past week. This is your reminder that we are about 140 subs away on YouTube from making the threshold for YouTube Partners program. So if you haven't yet, head over to our YouTube channel, subscribe, uh, ring the bell to get notifications, and make sure to go through our videos, like them, share them with your friends who love entertainment and who love film. And uh, also make sure to share this particular podcast with your friends as well. If you if you have movie nerd friends, uh, friends and family who who care about the industry and the happenings of it, we focus a lot of our attention on the shifting uh, nature of the entertainment industry, always keeping it fluid on new tech, uh, new streaming models, new theatrical models, everything like that, in addition to your casting news, your uh, regular TV news, and also just doing a bunch of reviews and reactions to things. So I would really appreciate it if you would follow the feed on whatever podcast platform you prefer. We are on all the major directories and all of the smaller ones as well. So we are everywhere to be found. Make sure to leave a review and uh, specifically leave a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts because it helps us greatly in the algorithm if you like the show. Until next week, wherever you are in the multiverse, take care. From 2018 until present, we have been firm supporters of Patreon, but we've noticed over the years that our supporters really don't utilize all the perks we have to offer for various tiers. So we wanted to make it easier to support our mission in cultivating a community of passionate media consumers and amplifying indie cinema. Starting today, we are excited to announce that you can do this by simply buying our team a coffee. The only exclusive item that will be made available to members is our podcast, Close Up. For just $5, the price of a cup of coffee, you can watch and listen to Ren and Jared talk about everything from life to the latest theatrical releases. Our membership options also get you producer credits on all of our videos and podcasts, access to our Discord server, and a merch discount of 15%. In addition, we've added wishlist items to the page to make it easier to help us upgrade critical equipment to produce quality content and commissions to react and review to a piece of media of your choosing. This could be films, trailers, songs, anything of the such. This is the first of many exciting changes coming at TBR Media. We hope you will follow along for the journey. TBR Media is your movie refuge.